Welcome to the Hope for the Animals podcast, sponsored by Compassionate Living. I'm your host, Hope Bohannock, and you can find all our episodes at our website, hopefortheanimalspodcast.org, and you can find my contact information there as well. Well, he is back by popular demand, my amazing husband of 23 years, Kojin Bohanik. Dr. Bohanik now, Kojin has his PhD in Hindu studies, his master's in Buddhist studies, and he works for a Jain Dharma Academy. He has assisted me in vegan activism for over 20 years now, and we co-authored a book together about the humane hoax called The Ultimate Betrayal. He was on the podcast uh, in December of last year, and we had a really fun conversation reminiscing about how we got together and random animal rescues that we've done over the years, and you all seemed to really love that episode. It got a lot of downloads and a lot of comments and shares, so I'm excited to have Kojin on again. So this time we're going to talk about some of the vegan philosophies that we've thought about and debated about over the years, some unique ideas that we've come up with. So I hope you enjoy it. And we might even tell the sushi story. So the first time that Kojin was on, we talked about how we got together two decades ago and Kojin brought up our our infamous sushi story, which was kind of a, a critical moment in our getting together which I kind of uh, brushed aside and, and said we didn't have time to tell because we had already talked so much about ourselves and I wanted to get into the, the content of the podcast, the animal rescue stories. But right after that episode, we did have a request to tell the sushi story. What was the sushi story? <laughs> so stay tuned and you just might get to hear the sushi story. And I'll just say that, you know, it's it's a little more casual when I have Kojin on. I certainly laugh a lot more <laughs> uh, than usual. I, yeah, hope you enjoy it. And uh, we'll just jump right in. Well, hello, Kojin Bohannik. Welcome to the podcast. Well, hello, Mrs. Bohannik. Thank you for having me. <laughs> sure. It's good to have you back on the show. We had a lot of fun the first time around. So, uh, yeah, so we're going to do it again. Uh, yeah, I like I like uh, forums where we actually have to be serious together because it's like being serious together is not normally our. No. Surrounding. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. And it's funny because, yeah, we have to kind of hold our seriousness. And that is tough with you and me because we play <laughs> and laugh a lot. <laughs> but we're talking about serious things today, our philosophies of veganism, but we'll see if we can play a little along the way as well. So today we're going to be delving into some of these philosophies that we have talked about over the years, some of them that we've kind of formulated and come up with kind of. And we debate and about these and talk about these frequently, daily, really. So we've had like 22 years to formulate some of these thoughts. And I wanted to, well, first, actually, though, because, you know, usually with my guests, we do a kind of get to know you question, like your vegan origin story. And we did that last time uh, when you were on before we did some extensive reminiscing of your vegan origin story and our getting together story, which kind of connect 22 years ago. So I, I wanted to just kind of do a short continuation of that story 
because what we didn't mention that I think is relevant and interesting is that we used to give vegan presentations together. The first 10 years or so of us being together in the, the early 2000s, the, the, um, the, the OOs, what are we calling those things? The, the aughts. The, the aughts. <laughs> what, what does that mean? You, you told me and I can't. Well, I know in military terms, like when they're describing various different level sizes of bullets and shells and stuff, if you use a zero, you say aught, like 30 aught six. But anyway, that's. Oh, it. oh, it's a military bullet weapon recharge. I, I don't know. <laughs> I, I, I'm a boy. But I know these things. <laughs> but you're not the only one. I've heard that before. Like I've heard that some people are trying to call them the aughts or whatever. Yeah, I think that aught is just another word for zero, I think. So. Okay. Okay. All right. Well, maybe there's some other usage rather than weaponry, hopefully, or bullets. Uh, the only place I've ever heard it. So I don't know. Okay. Okay. Well, anyway, whatever. That that makes me want to use it less. So we'll just say the early 2000s. Um, so anyway, back then you used to join me when I would give vegan presentations and you would do the health aspect. I would cover the animals and ethics and you would talk about health. You were studying nutrition kind of extensively back then. So I wondered if you wanted to just talk about those early days of us giving those talks together, you know, when, when, when we would be so excited if just like two people showed up. Yeah. You know? yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, the, the amount of numbers that we're able to reach these days or that you're able to reach really was unfathomable, you know, 20 years ago, yeah. particularly with the internet, being able to um, do podcasts, but also online conferences and things like that. But yeah, I remember the days, just how earnest and sincere it really made me fall in love with you. Honestly, um, you would, you would make like, you know, like a handmade flyer with a Xerox machine <laughs> yeah. for a vegan talk at, you know, the health food store or, you know, some local place, you know, and then we would show up and there'd be, you know, oftentimes usually less than 10 people. Oh, yeah. Um, I remember, <laughs> I remember a good portion of the time, nobody would show up, yeah. but it never, it never, it never dampened your spirits. I mean, you always, you know, still stuck by it. I mean, you kept trying. I mean, it just seemed really hard, you know, to show, to have a talk and have nobody show up is really, it's kind of a, it's, it's a sad thing. It's a sad feeling, you know, but you just had the tenacity to keep going. And I saw you do that and I saw your numbers grow and grow, but yeah, I mean, one of the reasons why you and I got together is because you were sort of enamored of my studying of health. And I was enamored of your sort of deep ethical values around animals. And it just kind of was like a, a match made in heaven. And so pretty soon you were doing the ethical part of the talk and I was doing the health part of the talk. And then uh, we would split the environment uh, talk, if I recall. Oh yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I think I would I would talk about the water, right? Mm. The issues around water, and I think you would talk about like climate change and deforestation and stuff like that. Um, yeah. But I remember we would do it like that. Was actually we were really a good team. Yeah, I remember them being really uh, well done, and we would tag team. And if I kind of left something out, you'd you'd pick it up. And yeah, yeah, that's yeah. great. Yeah, it was fun. But before we teamed up, you know, when you were giving the talks by yourself, I remember you had 
uh, a lot of it was diet for new America. You had like the flags in the book and you had the pages that you would flip open and you would read, you know, <laughs> the, the, nowadays we do like a PowerPoint, but that wasn't really a thing back then. It was yeah. like, you wanted to say something, you would hold up the book, flip to the page and read it. You know? <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's true. I, it was, I had that just beat up dog-eared copy of diet for new America with all the bookmarks in it. And, uh, and I would like hold up the graph, you know, like the, the image and the book yeah, like yeah, yeah. look at the graph that's yeah. how you did powerpoint back then yeah or we'd find something in the newspaper that would sort of affirm our position and we'd like xerox the newspaper article and then we'd hand it out yeah. on the, on the tables you know we'd have like xerox magazine articles and you know i mean this kind of uh, these young people today they don't know what we have yeah that's right <laughs> they don't they don't know they don't know struggle got all the graphics and tons of information and at their fingertips. Yeah, boy, we, we, uh, we had to grassroots it. <laughs> and maybe, maybe that's why the animal rights movement and vegan movement has really taken off, you know, it's because our, you know, so our resources, uh, have gotten so much better, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's certainly been helpful. <laughs> that's for sure. Yeah. yeah. That's the, the, the vegan sort of aspect of our, our origin story. But yeah, I was really passionate about health back then. I was doing a lot of, I was raw food, um, which I kind of quit after about five years or so. I was very enamored of your uh, healthy, healthy diet and lifestyle. Oh, and actually that kind of reminds me that we were going to maybe talk about the sushi story, our sushi story, because in the first podcast, uh, the first time you were on, uh, back in December, we, I, you wanted to talk about the sushi story. You, you started to talk about this and I was like, wait, wait, we'd already talked so much about us and our stuff. And I just kind of wanted to get into the content and the rescue stories. So I said, no, no, let's not. We did get a request from someone asking, well, what was the sushi story? Cause we never told the sushi story. Uh, so maybe we should, you know, tell the sushi story. I don't know. You want to, you want to do that? <laughs> Once upon a time, there was a beautiful maiden. And she, met, she, she was enamored of a young prince who would only eat raw food. <laughs> and so she decided she would make raw sushi. <laughs> well, and I was, I was, this was when we weren't even, were we dating? A kind of, we were just kind of like flirting at well, this point. In my mind, we were pretty much already married, but. Oh. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we but i was i i loved your uh ethics your energy your uh dedication and determination and all of that to healthy living and healthy and also eco eco living i mean you refused to drive a car you you know <laughs> there was a lot that you were doing very very eco as well so i was just enamored of your hardcore awesomeness and yeah, yeah, like I didn't, I didn't use toothpaste or any shampoo right. or any of those body care products. You were really trying to navigate as light an impact as you could, and as healthy a diet as you could. And so, so I thought, well, I'm going to surprise him. We were going to some event. Oh, it was a pea planting event, the um, planting, planting earth, earth activation. It was these great kids that would transform urban spaces people's front yards and empty lots into gardens. And so we were going to go help garden. And I thought I'd make some sushi 
for you um, some raw sushi with, you know, not rice, but all raw in And you were, so, you were so proud of yourself. You were like, I have something for you. I made something for you. I was, I was so proud. I was all thinking that you were going to be so impressed. <laughs> and you took one look at it. Yeah. I, I don't like to think of myself as an ungrateful person. I mean, I usually appreciate any <laughs> gifts that are offered for me, but I was pretty uh, vigilant back in those days. Yeah. And, and I noticed that the nori wraps were green and not purple. I knew that something was awry. <laughs> 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 those, were, those were toasted. Those, those were toasted. toasted. The, the, the nori wraps were toasted. They were not raw. And so, like, I, I mean, I had know that. And I had like a huge crush on me. So, what kind of guy is like, oh, I'm sorry, I can't eat that? You know, like, okay, but here's the thing <laughs> you, you, you were like, yeah, I'm sorry, I can't do it. It's not fully raw. And Instead of being, I mean, you know, whatever, any normal person would be like, <laughs> that would have been the end a of jerk, it. you know, <laughs> really? I made these for you. What the hell? No, I was like, yeah, right <laughs> on. He is that hardcore that he is not going to eat. I mean, I, I loved it. I loved it. I thought that that was so powerful and so sticking to your ethics and your values. And, and I love that. I mean, if somebody had offered me not vegan food, I wouldn't have eaten it, you know? Yeah. But that was so, the, that was kind of like the basis of our whole courtship was sort of the mutual admiration of each other's integrity. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah. I, I had, I had another moment. It was, it was a couple of weeks after we'd gotten together, but I, I had already planned a uh, cross country trip with my brother and so we'd gone across the country and the whole time he was eating vegan, like I was eating and everything. Uh, but then when we got to New York, we'd been in the car, living in the car for about three, four, five weeks. And uh, I turned around and he walks up with this big, like greasy, drippy slice of New York pizza. Yeah. And you guys and had been eating vegan. We've been eating time. vegan and raw the whole time. Yeah. You know? And and I thought that I thought that he'd really made it, I made an impression on him and that he would. I, I thought, I guess, I, you know, you know, as a novice vegan back then, I thought that people I cared about, if they would just would see the go, food, they, they just, would change. They would all go vegan. Yeah. And I felt like I had weeks with him. He saw it. He saw the light. And then yeah. I turned around and he's eating this piece of dead cow pizza, you know? And uh. that's when I, and I had this moment because I'd been thinking about you the whole time in the car because, you know, I really, really was sort of feeling vexed by our separation. So I was thinking about you a lot. But that was like this moment where I said, you know, I've only ever really met like one person who is as principled as I am, you know, and um, and I know that I did know a lot of we, you know, we knew kids from plant and earth activation who were principled about organic gardening. I mean, and we knew earth a lot first of, and we knew a lot of people for animal rights. There was there was a lot of activism going on. Yeah. There. And there was a lot of very principled people around yeah. us. But there was something distinct about the way the tenacity about which you went for things, <laughs> you know, about your sort of you, you relentless, your tired, tirelessness, your there was a drive about you that I'd never seen, even amongst all of those people that we knew. Hmm. And I just had this feeling that I saw. And I think what it was was something like hope would never disappoint me. As a matter of fact, I always felt like I was reaching up to be more like you. You were kind of like my role model. And so it was like a nice feeling when you see so many people, you know, I mean, when you're hanging out with the permaculture movement and then suddenly they're like doing a chicken slaughter or something, it's a very 
heart sinking, disappointing feeling. Yeah. You know, these people you see are so ethical and so principled suddenly this sort of disconnection, you know, they have so much compassion for the earth as a system. And so what happens is, you know, people get so seduced with these abstract notions of, you know, the environment, biodiversity, permaculture, it's almost as if they, they no longer connect with the actual individuals in the system, Mm. you know, the animals in the system. So when you have this like lofty ideal of urban homesteading to live in harmony with the environment, right? If you've got to kill a few animals to make that happen, you preference the abstract over the concrete individual. Mm-hmm. And this is, seems to be, you know, what we were experiencing a lot with our, with our groups of people, you know, the environmentalists we were with, you know, the sort of permaculture group, you're so integrated with this thing called nature that you become indifferent to the, the beings within the individuals, you know, they're, 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 they're they're, they're people, you know, animals are people just like us. Yeah. And so we were seeing these sorts of disappointments left and right, you know, and I think that, and I think that at that point, both of both you and I were sort of starved to see like this high level of integrity in another person, somebody who was unshakable in that sort of commitment to living compassionately. You, the, the level of integrity that you had from my perspective was sort of above and beyond even the people that we knew. And I, and I was was very attracted to that. I was very enamored by that. Yeah. I I felt the same way uh, about you. you Yeah. Yeah. And so in some ways like that sushi story becomes like that symbol Mm. of like (laughs) me having too much integrity to bite on a piece of toasted nori, even if it would further my courtship with this you know, girl who I was madly in love with. Well, and that's and that's the thing to me. I was like, you know, his ideals are even more important than me. And I appreciate that. I do. I mean, I I got I get that, you know, that that it's more important than anything. Yeah. Uh, to hold to your values, to hold your ethics, to hold to that compassion. It was really beautiful. I love, I loved that moment because it was kind of a, one of the moments that made me fall in love with you. Uh, when you refused my sushi. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I think we've kind of always like, you know, held that sort of incident up as like a symbol of how, <laughs> I don't know, how intra- attracted we were to each other's yeah. like integrity. You know? Right, right. Okay, well, that was a bit more reminiscing, easy to do with us. So, uh, and if anyone wants to hear the full story of our, your vegan origin story and our getting together story, we get into a lot of, fun detail as well in the first uh, episode that you were on back in December. I will put a link to that episode in the show notes. And then we, of course, talk about uh, rescue stories, animals that we have rescued over the years that were in distress in random situations, some harrowing uh, situations of animal rescue. So it's a fun, fun episode. So we wanted today to talk about some philosophies. And I'll just say first here that these philosophies are a work in progress. We're always exploring and debating and we could change our minds. You know, these aren't set in stone. And if you find yourself fuming or offended by anything we say here, you know, please connect, give us your take on it. We'd love to hear different views and ways of thinking about these things. These are ethical conundrums. And, you know, these are just our humble opinions after 20 years of vegan thought and debate over this stuff. So 
So the first one that we want to talk about is hypocrisy versus complacency. So vegans are sometimes accused of being hypocrites or hypocritical, or, or we can feel like hypocrites. And animal activists, uh, vegans are often asked, some, sometimes at protests and in kind of more contentious situations, we're asked questions like, are your shoes leather? And, you know, the person asking is most likely trying to catch someone in a gotcha moment, accusing us of being hypocritical. I mean, that's basically what they're asking. What they're saying is, aren't you hypocritical? But the answer often is no. Most vegans don't wear leather, but some do. And, you know, we should all be striving to make personal choices that will improve our world. Striving being the key word here. And, Perhaps someone has just gone vegan or they're, you know, choosing to put their energy into avoiding animal products in their food and they haven't taken it to the level of their clothes yet, whatever. It's a process. But, but like I said, actually what that person is asking is, aren't you a hypocrite? And it's a legitimate question, you know, because even the purest vegans usually use some animal products. It's, it's, it's practically unavoidable uh, in our society. There's gelatin in tires, uh, in film. Luckily we don't use film as much now it's all digital, but still there's animal products in so much there's beer and wine has, uh, they use fish and eggs in the clarification process of beer and wine medications, vaccines. They're going to either have animal ingredients or use animal testing. So it's almost unavoidable, uh, with these kind of smaller gray area, uh, uh, animal products, we do what we can, right? We avoid meat, dairy, and eggs as vegans. And that is a noble endeavor, but it's, it's, it's not a contest. It's, you know, it's an ethical practice about being conscientious, making better decisions. And it's about direction, not perfection. What I'm going to let Kojin pick up on is that if you're, if all your ethical goals are accomplished, then you're not shooting high enough. You're not aiming high enough. We can always do better. We can always do more. So we are kind of hypocrites, right? But we should be because we should always be striving to do better. Okay. So I'm like, I'm going to let Kojin take it from there. Um, yeah. The way I refer to this, I refer to this as the hypocritical imperative. Oh, that's for right. Those, and for those of you out there who've studied ethics, you know that this is a play on Kantian ethics, which is the hypothetical imperative. Now, what uh, Immanuel Kant said is that a hypothet hypothetical imperative is that you would decide to do or not do something based on whether you could hypothetically see everybody doing it or not doing that. So for example, you wouldn't steal because you wouldn't want everybody to steal. You wouldn't lie because you wouldn't want everybody to lie. It's not, it's not dissimilar to like a, a golden rule, sort of like do unto others, right? So you would uh, extend a certain moral virtue to the entire population hypothetically. Now uh, I call this the uh, hypocritical imperative uh, because it's imperative, not so much I mean, sure, maybe we should be able to extend ethics so that everybody could or couldn't do. Um, I, I think it's kind of a weak sort of ethic because there's a lot of things that are unique to people's different situations. You know, I don't think that universalizing ethics is necessarily, um, it can be hegemonic in itself. With the hypocritical imperative, the word imperative is that it's imperative that as ethical people, we're all hypocrites. We have to have our 
goals and our aspirations higher than what we can currently reach. So something like I like in, in, in veganism is ultimately based on the hypocritical imperative because there's no way you can be fully vegan. You're always going to be a hypocrite. And that's not a weakness of the philosophy. That's the strength of the philosophy. Because when you have a goal that's higher than what you're able to achieve, then you're constantly being, being called upon to do better than you currently are. So for example, fossil fuels are a pretty good example of something that I don't think anybody could consider vegan. Yeah. <laughs> fossil fuels, there is so much death and destruction along the line there that fossil fuels are, uh, are definitely not vegan. And we could do this with agriculture in general. You know, there's animals killed even in plant agriculture, whatever. But we're all hypocrites because we can never really meet the full standard of veganism. So really, ultimately, what veganism is based off of is this uh, hypocritical imperative that it is a goal that's far beyond anybody's ability to reach to be a pure vegan. Nobody can be a pure vegan. But I, I think that what happens is that vegans get criticized. You know, people will try to find the hypocrisy in the vegan. They'll try to find the one thing that you're doing that's not fully vegan. And they'll use that as a way to systematically dismantle or to attempt to dismantle a whole vegan philosophy. But rather than that being like a zinger where it's like, ah, you're caught, see your philosophy doesn't work. It's, it works the other way. And this is, this is also, um, this is also being framed as, as like um, the way virtue ethics work, right? Because any virtue is always going to be above and beyond your ability to fully manifest it given the limitations of worldly life, you know? So not killing is not really something that we'll ever be able to fully do. I mean, we're killing all the time in our worldly lives. But that being said, when you have it as a virtue to aspire towards, you're constantly developing and changing in that direction. So that's sort of like having an ideal that's beyond your ability to attain is the source of a strength for an ethical system. It's not, it's not a basis for which an ethical system can be rightly criticized. Yeah. So, and what I think when we talk about this is having cats and the cat food. This was so, uh, so it was such a contradiction and felt so just ethically, ooh, um, messy uh, when we had kitties. And, you know, all our cats came to us in, from rescue situations, you know, or where we just, we found, we found sweet pea in an alley, you know, she needed a home so bad. And, uh, you know, all our cats kind of came to us just from these, that, that there was an animal in need that we brought home, but cats are carnivores, uh, unlike humans and dogs that can thrive on a plant-based vegan diet. Cats, do need the taurine. It's a, an amino acid that is only found in meat. They do need meat to thrive. So here's these vegans buying, I was buying, you know, whatever pounds and pounds of uh, dead animals to feed to my cats. And it was, oh, it was, so, it was very difficult. I think that a lot of cat uh, parents, cat lovers, that they have a hard time with this. You know, there's an animal in need that you've taken into your home that you have, you've taken on, you know, the responsibility to, to keep this animal healthy, to keep this animal happy. 
then you have to kill other animals to do it. It's, it's tough. It's a real tough one. Uh, but you know, everyone's got to find their level of comfort with it. And so we've, we've come to a place where, you know, all our kitties passed, uh, and we've decided not to bring in any more cats into our home because we just don't want to buy meat anymore, but it's, we miss kitties and, you know, and then now there's kitties out there that aren't being rescued because we made that decision. It's, it's really tough, but again, it's, it's that kind of hypocrisy. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's a couple issues where that that's, I mean, there's like in animal rescue where, you know, you're like feeding meat to like various different carnivores that have been rescued in the wild, you know, yeah, yeah. is that ethical or not? And I remember you'd actually worked for a wildlife rescue yep. uh, for a brief time where you had to feed meat to other animals. Yeah. It was like, like little frozen mice and yeah. stuff to the raptors. And I, oh, I just couldn't do it. <laughs> it what, what, are, what are the ethics behind that? I mean, yeah. it's certainly uh, protecting wild animals who've been injured and rehabilitating them and bringing them back to health is a good thing, right? But how many little animals are being killed in the process of doing that? And so, you know, it's 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 just there's gray areas, right? Yeah. You know, there's gray areas. So I guess just wrapping up our hypocritical imperative, uh, you know, we're all hypocrites to some degree, and that's a good thing, is what we're arguing. Uh, it's it's you know it's setting your goals higher than you can actually achieve, and because if we don't do that, we become complacent. We're arguing for hypocrisy over complacency. Did did you want to wrap that up, Kojin? Yeah, I think that's nicely put. Though when you're given the choice between complacency and hypocrisy, I always pick hypocrisy. <laughs> I mean, and I think that any ethical system is going to have a certain degree of hypocrisy involved in it because we can't live up to our purest ethical ideals and you know that's not an argument to just like not aspire you know not aspire to be in better people just because we can't live up to the absolute perfection of our ideals actually really having these types of ideals are sort of the better part of humanity and they should be applauded even if we don't fully meet up to them you know i see people do this with gandhi all the time you know they try to find flaws in his personal conduct and his behavior, which there were, but then they, they try to extend that to sort of like refute the entire sort of Gandhian project of nonviolence. And Gandhi was very clear that he was not able to live up to his ideals and he never claimed to be able to, but he was just somebody who tried with everything he could to meet, to meet those ideals. And that's what made him the great person that he was was that he was somebody who was willing to try his hardest to meet ideals that he would admit are impossible to meet. And those are the kind of people that we think of as like saintly. It's not right to try to find somebody's shortcomings when they're actually, you know, aspiring in a way that a normal person wouldn't. Yeah. But I mean, veganism as a baseline is not really, you know, it's not something that, you know, the extreme purity of veganism is, is a hypocritical imperative. It's something that nobody can ever reach but the baseline of veganism, of not eating these products, you know, and I've even known people who, you know, who they're aspiring vegans and they kind of fall off the wagon every few months or, you know, or I've known vegans who would eat turkey on Thanksgiving or something. And, you know, I like, I don't think you should do that, but I, you know, I don't think that you, you like want to take somebody's vegan card away because of a failure to meet an ideal because because we're all failing in our ideals it's where somebody's heart is is really that's what's important and if somebody's really trying honestly and sincerely you know not just giving lip service to it, but are really sincerely trying 
you know, then I don't think we should condemn somebody for being hypocritical in their failures to meet their ideals if their heart is in the right place. Yeah. And I, I think that one of the workarounds that's been interesting is the, the, the rise of the plant-based label as opposed to the vegan label. And I think the popularity of the plant-based label is because it's perceived as a more tolerant, a more flexible, a more achievable, a more inclusive sort of label. Because you, when you're saying you're plant-based, you're not committing to like an absolute standard of purity. You know, and I think that that's why a lot of like flexitarian minded people are moving increasingly in vegan direction because of this new sort of label of plant based seems to be more inclusive and inviting of them. Whereas the vegan label seems to be a little bit more exclusive for people who are just not going to do it. And like, let's face it, there's a big percentage of the population that may never go vegan but we still want to pull them in that direction. Yeah. And yeah. But they may, they may not go vegan, but they're going to eat vegan eventually right, when all right. the food is vegan. That's, so. right, that's right. That's right. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, we don't need you. We don't need you to be we on our ideological. <laughs> yeah, we don't need you to be on our ideological team. We're not looking right. at, you're not joining our gang, you know, like we don't care. Just don't eat animals. You right. Know? Exactly. And so, you know, if that means creating uh, sort of labels like plant-based that are more inclusive and drawing people closer to that vegan goal without them feeling like there's a sort of like absolute standard that they can't live up to, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm torn on the plant-based label. I see your points. I understand your points and, and I'm seeing it on everything. I mean, it's amazing. You see plant-based on like diapers and just random products, which is great. I'm glad that you know, the people, well, it's, it can be a bit of greenwashing too and humane washing, but I'm glad that it's getting more out there. It's getting more recognition at the same time. I don't want to water anything down and I don't want, you know, there are plant-based products out there. I, I saw this the other day that are not vegan. They have plant-based on the label, but they've got honey in them or something like that. And it's like, well, wait a minute that's confusing first <laughs> and also a bit of a water down. So I don't know. I, I I'm kind of torn on the plant-based label. Well, it's uh intention and direction rather than uh, perfection, isn't it? Because, uh, you know, if you, if, if you, if you're using plant-based in a way that sort of waters down veganism and vegans start identifying as plant-based and therefore allow themselves to have lapses and, you know, like occasional animal product consumption, then plant-based is, is not a good thing. And also if plant-based doesn't give a clear sense of ideal of where we're trying to head, plant-based means like, let's try to like not have animals, you know, plant-based seems a little bit more vague because after all, I can have a plate of food this big, three quarters of the plate is covered with salad and veggies and a quarter of it's like a steak. And I could say, well, the meal's plant-based. Look, it's mostly plants. Yeah, right. You know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the yeah. basis of this meal is plant, you know, <laughs> it's a small piece of meat like that, you know. I mean, then it can then it can be really, really problematic. So I think we're gonna find a sort of uh, a contested terminology here. I think you know, I haven't seen the animal agriculture try to co-opt plant-based. I don't think they know what to do with it yet. Um, yeah. and so, so, so far we're benefiting from the sort of like, I guess the esteem of that label and that we're pulling flexitarians into a more vegan direction. Mm. And I think if, and you know, what's the value of plant-based? Well, if it's got cash value, 
And that like real world effect is that less animals are being eaten because more people are feeling safe to eat meals that don't have meat in them. Cause after all, like, old, you know, longtime vegans like us remember a time where it was unheard of to have a meal without meat in it. Yeah. You know, the like people who are our generation and older, they would not eat a meal if it didn't have meat in it. Yeah. You know, they would complain of not being full or not being satisfied. But the younger generation, I believe in millennials. I believe in millennials. Like, <laughs> statistically speaking, they have gr- higher, stronger ideals than any previous generation. And I think for millennials, you know, because of terms like plant-based, the idea of eating a meal without meat in it, in it even if you're not identifying as a vegan, is something that's more and more accepted. So yeah. the cash value is that less animals will get killed. But, you know, at the same time, we could placate them with plant-based and then they don't like feel the need to be vegan because they get the esteem of being plant-based and they ignore the higher ideal of vegan. And in that case, there's a sort of situation where plant-based, if it replaces veganism, is going to make people not aspire to the higher goal, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. versus if plant-based is a higher goal than the like have to have meat every day. So it's, it all depends on which direction is being used, right? So if it's a, it's a watering down of veganism, then it's, you know, not a good thing. If it's a, a, a bringing more people away from eating meat, eating less animals, then it is a good thing. So it's a direction, not perfection thing, I think. Yeah. Interesting. Well, it kind of uh, leads us into our next philosophy, which we do call directional ethics, but that's not exactly what you think. So I think there, that, that the term directional ethics is used for this when we're talking about people moving from like vegetarian to vegan or, or, or promoting reducitarianism. I think that's sometimes called directional ethics, but that's not what we're talking about here. What we're talking about is whether or not to support an entity like a, a restaurant or a product that's moving in the wrong direction. So what got us started thinking about this was that years ago, I worked at a natural food store in Sonoma County, and they had been vegetarian since the seventies, like a long, long, long time vegetarian store. I I left the store to work for animal rights full-time. And so I was no longer working there, but we heard that they were going to start selling meat. Uh, And, you know, I, I, I didn't work there anymore. It's, it's, it's honestly, it's questionable if it would have happened if I still worked there. Cause I would have not let it happen. I have a lot of guilt around that, but you know, hopefully leaving to work for full-time on veganism, I've done more good to offset this horrible development. Uh, but anyway, many people, uh, in the vegan community, the vegetarian community felt totally betrayed and started shopping at Whole Foods and kind of other, you know, other places like Sprouts so that we have some other options for natural foods. And the argument went that Whole Foods is still worse and that shopping at this smaller market was better because of, well, the amount of meat was less, you know, than Whole Foods. They were local, like all that kind of stuff. But we felt that it was still worth boycotting them because they were moving in the wrong direction. Whereas Whole Foods, you know, with all its flaws was getting more and more vegan products. They were promoting veganism more. They were moving in the right direction. So the trajectory of the business is kind of key 
in whether or not to support them in these kinds of situations. And there's a much more recent example with Coconut Bliss, formerly Coconut Bliss. They're changing their name to Cosmic Bliss. All their products used to be vegan. They were a coconut milk ice cream company, but recently they changed their name to Cosmic Bliss and brought in a new line of grass-fed cow dairy. Ah, So, you know, some might argue that this is still better to support, right? Because they're still a small company. They still have their vegan coconut ice creams. They're not a big corporation, Uh, but ice cream companies like Ben and Jerry's and Haagen-Dazs now have vegan options, uh, you know, vegan lines. And so our, I, I would say our argument is that it's better now to support Ben and Jerry's vegan options and Haagen-Dazs vegan options, even though those are big corporate companies that are horrible and have been supporting the torture of cows for years, they're moving in the right direction by offering vegan options and should be supported, whereas Coconut Bliss should now, Cosmic Bliss, whatever, should now be boycotted because they're moving in the wrong direction and bringing in animal products. So this is our kind of directional ethics thing. So Kojin, did you want to talk about this a little? Well, I think the Coconut Bliss example is the best illustration of that. The other way I was thinking about it is, you know, let's say you have a small restaurant that's vegan and it's local. You're supporting local businesses. You're supporting the community, right? It's a more ethical establishment versus like a chain restaurant that's not even vegan and is a big corporation. But the chain restaurant has recently started adding, you know, a vegan option or maybe even a vegan menu. And so you're, it's Friday night, you go out to eat once a week and you can choose either to get what seems to be the more ethical, small local vegan cuisine, or if nobody orders it from the giant corporation, the menu could get discontinued. So you want to support the big corporate entity to get them to go more vegan. And so when small businesses go vegan, it's going to have a less real world effect on animal suffering than if a giant corporation were to go vegan. Like if Kentucky Fried Chicken can convince its customers that vegan chicken is just as good, if not better than regular chicken, that's going to be an immense sort of impact on the world. So the question is, is one of the options to spend your you know, $50 Friday night money fund is one of the options more ethical or less ethical? Is it in some senses more ethical to get giant corporations to move in the direction of veganism than it is to support smaller communities, smaller businesses that are already vegan? And I think that most people would say, well, you got to support the smaller business. I think that's kind of like we have a sort of ethos in our society to support the small guy over the big guy. But at the same time, the big people, the big corporations, they're the ones who are really causing an overwhelming majority of animal suffering. And so the amount of change that becomes affected when they stop using animal products, or even if they replace a couple of menu items, I mean, there could be millions of chickens a year saved because of like one option for vegan chicken at Kentucky Fried Chicken. Yeah. You know, you're actually supporting like what could save millions and millions and millions of animals versus like if you go to the local 
restaurant, you know, you're supporting a restaurant that's going vegan, but how many animals are you really saving or how, what do you really, it, it, I, I think there's a certain point where it's, 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 it's nearly impossible to quantify these sort of things. And, and when you're, when you're talking about splitting hairs, it's not, it's gray enough air area that you can't really condemn somebody for making one choice or the other. Even if you had strong feelings about it, you can't condemn one choice or the other. But the argument being, and you know, is that the corporation going in the direction of veganism is worthy of supporting. Now, what happens when the small vegan restaurant suddenly decides that they're going to start selling, uh, you know, grass-fed, organic, free-range, whatever, buffalo meat or something? Right. You know? Does that make the uh, sort of gray area of that choice more decisive? Yeah. Because if it was kind of like, I'm not sure which one's better, getting the corporation to go more vegan or supporting the existing vegan restaurant. But then once that existence vegan restaurant starts getting less vegan, let's say they start offering dairy cheese. You know, I think that it makes the choice a little bit more clear who you want to support. You want to send a message to whatever industry that they're going in the wrong. And, you know, it's like, I don't want to frame this in a way that's favoring like big corporations over small corporations, because you could have two equally sized corporations. You could have like a, like what would happen if like Amy's, you know, they've been vegetarian for how long since the seventies, what would happen if they started carrying meat? Well, we would want to boycott it to give them the message that like, no, this is not a good choice. Your customer base, you know, the, the, your customers have helped you be the corporation that you are, don't support that. You know, we'd want to move away from that to give that clear message versus if some sort of like mainstream product that has never had any veganism is experimenting to see if they have uh, any sort of market potential with a vegan product. We'd want to support that. And this becomes like the intent, the direction is really what counts, you know? So, you know, you only have $50 on your Friday night and how to spend it in the way that's going to give the clearest sort of demand message to the suppliers. I think it can be pretty gray, but I think that it, it is important to consider which direction the uh, company is going in and what message you want to send. Cause you're either supporting them going in the direction of animal products or supporting the, them and going in the direction of veganism. In some ways that actually can be more important. I think this is really the heart of the issue is that can be more important than total amount of animal products sold. Right. So like arguably like the meat company just starting a vegan thing is killing way more animals than a vegan company starting an animal product line is killing way less animals. But the like total amount of animals being killed may be less important than the type of message you're sending with your consumer dollar to move in the vegan direction versus moving the animal uh, product direction. So it's just a really kind of complicated gray area that you can get into. And I think that somebody could very easily refute this and say, no, always give the money to the company that's killing less animals. I think that's a fine sort of argument, but then the counter argument is, but then aren't you supporting companies if they decide to go more into animal products? Because after all, they're going to probably profit more. If they start selling animal products, you really want to support that, you know? Yeah. So you sort of have like an equipollent argument, but it's still a peculiar type of, you know, ethical argument that I don't think gets really considered. And I think that this is sort of like the political activism of spending in a dollar. It's like, you know, which message are you sending with your dollar? 
becomes as important as like what company are you supporting? It's like the the company you're supporting versus the message you're sending. And sometimes they can be at odds with each other in this case. Yeah, well said. Uh, I think that that really broke it down well. And it's true. It's it's such a, it is like you said, splitting hairs in some instances. It's very hard to know what what's going to be best. You kind of have to weigh it, go with your heart, go with your gut and, uh, you know, figure out for yourself what's going to be the best thing to support. But I think that we've proposed something here that's interesting uh, in that it's better, I believe, to support the direction the company is going in, the direction the restaurant's going in, the direction the product's going in, rather than just the numbers of how many animals are killed or uh, you know what's going on um, in other areas. I think that the direction, uh, the intention of the entity is critical in the, in the equation. Well, yeah. And I think that, you know, when you get to this sort of like, you know, what we'd call in philosophy, equipollence, where there's two arguments that seem to be like very closely of equal merit, you know, like I wouldn't condemn somebody who, you know, denies directional ethics. They would say, no, I'm going to support the company that kills less animals. Right. I don't care about direction. Like, I think that's, that's a fine argument. It's not the position that you and I have arrived at. But I'm not going to condemn that position. Like, yeah, I, yeah, it's, it's sure, blurry yeah. enough. Sure, and so sure. I think what starts to happen is you start finding these 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 gray areas. And I think we mentioned some gray areas with the hypo- hypocritical imperative as well, too. But you know, preferring intention over perfection, I think, is one way of resolving that. But I think it's also important to note how, how much of this is quantifiable. Can we quantify the amount of good done by spending dollars in one area or another based exclusively on how many animals are being killed by each respective company, right? So the argument would be is like, don't spend the money at the corporation that's killing more animals that's starting a vegan line because they're killing more animals. Do spend your money at the vegan company that's just started carrying, you know, animal milk or cheese or whatever, right? Because they're killing less animals, And so what my question would be, is it really that easy to quantify? Can we quantify ethics literally to the amount of animals being killed? And is that the only deciding factor? And I think what we're saying is we're saying there's also something else that's not quite as quantifiable, right? The the idea of which direction is each company moving? What is the message that we're sending? Is that that wholly quantifiable, I think, is, is sort of the question there. So that's actually an excellent segue into our next topic of discussion, which is about quantifying, weighing what's the best thing that we can do for animals as advocates beyond being vegan. Vegan, of course, is just baseline, the most basic thing one can do. But some people sometimes feel like, or they make the excuse, oh, well, I'm just one person. How can me going vegan help anything? How can I make a difference as just one person being vegan? And then there's also, you know, what is the most effective activism? What's the best thing that I can do, that we can do, that I should be doing uh, to be the best activist I can be? And there's a lot of debate and a lot of discussion around this issue in the animal rights circles. And one thing that, that I've really come to is that 
these are things that are very hard to quantify because you can say to somebody, leafleting is the best thing. We've done research, we've done studies and leafleting is the best, you know, bang for your buck and you can get the most information out for the least amount of money or whatever. But if you tell someone that doesn't really like leafleting or that isn't very outgoing, you know, you need to go out and leaflet. Well, that that's not going to be inspiring. It's they're they're not going to put their whole heart into it. They're not going to be doing it every day. You know, so we have to really look at a larger picture of what's the most effective thing that we can do. And then also coming back to that, I'm just one person. There is a way to quantifiably prove that one person does make a difference, that one person can make a difference. If you're buying that last vegan product on the shelf and the clerk has to stock, you know, make an order and stock more of that vegan product, yeah, that's that's making a difference. If you order that vegan meal at the restaurant that nobody had ordered that week and they're like, oh, somebody ordered it, great, we'll, we'll keep it on the menu, you know then you've made a difference. So there is quantifiable difference, but there's also non-quantifiable benefits to being vegan. And I know you talk about this really eloquently. So I'm going to, I'm going to let you pick it up there. Yeah. There's, there's a lot of different ways that you can think about this. I think with the, like the vegan activism, the argument goes something like, you know, if we do X, we'll get a certain percentage of respondents who will be likely to go vegan. If we do Y, we'll get a greater degree of respondents that will go vegan. Therefore, we should do Y instead of X. If we're going to invest our time and energy and capital into vegan activism, let's do the thing that produces the most vegans, right? Another way of framing this is you could say, as I've heard you say, you know, I've been a vegan, I've been a vegan activist for 30 years. You know, I've, you know, made so many vegans, right? But so-and-so, there's always somebody who's higher in any field. They have made so many more people vegan and so less of a time. And this I, I is- just want to clarify that I have no idea how many vegans I've made. I've never said that. I don't- <laughs> But, 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 but you can point to people who you believe have made more vegans in shorter time or yeah, mm-hmm. made more of an impact possibly. And, yeah, sure. and, and what I'm talking about is the numbers, more okay. vegans versus less vegans, shorter time versus longer time and being the supportive husband that I am, I hope <laughs> um, I look at you and I say, well, numbers aren't everything, Yeah, you know, because you don't actually know. So let's say I've only made, and I'm an easy example because I haven't done a quarter of the activism that you've done. You know, I talk about veganism in the college classroom a lot and I do my little thing. So I imagine that I've probably made a hundred vegans. I'm going to just throw a number out there. hundred vegans. I was going to say, how could you know that? But you're just kind of just, picking a number. Okay. a number. It doesn't matter okay. what the number is. Probably more versus, than that. Versus you. I would hope so. But let's go with a hundred. <laughs> okay. Versus you, you've made, you know, a hundred thousand vegans, right? Okay. Now on the surface, you're doing much greater and better activism because of the numbers, but, and I don't like using myself as an example. I like to use and use the example better because you know, you've done so much, (laughs) somebody has done so much more, but you don't know that the person who's done less has reached a potentially more powerful person. So if I only made one person vegan in their life or influence them, I shouldn't say made, but influence one person to go vegan in their life, but that one person ends up being the person who creates the, the vegan product that 
can undercut the cost of an animal product in the fast food industry, which then sort of creates a turning point where fast food industries are now going to invest in plant-based products because it's more cost-effective than animal products. Mm-hmm. That person is the only person I ever made vegan. Arguably, I've done more good. You know, if you reduce everything to quantity and to numbers, you can at some point overlook the quality. So you never know the quality of person you are influencing, even if you can know the quantity of person. It might be that people who are more interested in farm sanctuaries are going to be people who are more likely to do activism or who knows. You don't really know how influential these people may or may not be. Just because farm sanctuary may get less vegans per invested capital than, you know, vegan literature. That's that's reducing everything. It's too reductive. It's reducing everything to quantity when there's a quantifiable element to it. Yeah, but let me just throw a kind of devil's advocate here and 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 ask but it's just luck of the draw that the hundred people had that that one awesome person that went on to do something amazing. Isn't it more if, if you reach more people, then it's more likely that you're going to reach that one awesome person. You know maybe, what I mean? Maybe, so but that one awesome person may not be interested in the type of thing that reaches more people. Ah, okay. There we go. Proclivity in their personality that makes them attracted to this like you know, much smaller, much less effective numerically sort of form of activism. But that's Ah. the thing that influences this one person who's going to not quantitatively, but qualitatively create more of a difference. So we just, you know, you can't, you can't, you can't quantify the heart of a human being. So if you reduce everybody to numbers, you're dehumanizing them right? You're, you're, you're reducing the quality of humanness and the activism. And that's the problem because you never really know that you're being more effective just because you can quantify greater numbers. And you never really know that somebody's being less effective because they can't quantify it because the qualitative principle is not something you can reduce to numbers. And ultimately as activists, we're not dealing with quantities. We're dealing with qualities. We're dealing with what it means to be human. We're dealing with who we are more than what we do. Sure, what we do, we don't want us to eat animals, but what is the thing that's going to create what we do? It's who we are. And that is not quantifiable. That's the quality of human beings that we are. So it makes sense if ultimately what we're after as activists is to change the quality of humanity, of who we are, that intangible aspect of a person that makes them a good person or a bad person, a good heart, somebody who's caring, who's altruistic, somebody who's compassionate. You can quantify the effects of being that type of person, but you can't reduce that to numbers. And that's what we're ultimately after is the quality of human beings. And if all we're doing is looking at the quantity and the numbers and statistics of numbers, we're never really getting to the heart of the matter. And that's really, so it makes sense that we shouldn't just reduce everything to quantifiability because ultimately we're not just after quantifiability. We're trying to change who we are qualitatively so that that will affect what we do quantitatively. It's almost like a, a, like a hierarchical direction of causation. Who we are causes what we do. Changing what we do doesn't necessarily change who we are. 
Mm. Changing who we are necessarily changes what we do. Yeah. So there's like a, there's a, there's, there's going to the heart of the issue is who we are, who we are, who yeah, we are, yeah. what we do will follow. Yeah. And I think that kind of uh, blends into that, oh, I'm just one person kind of excuse. Because when we embrace veganism, when we show up as compassionate people with ethical fortitude, you know, then it's unquantifiable, but you're going to have an effect when you encounter people, when you encounter friends and family, when just how you move through the world, I think can make a difference. If we are embracing veganism, if we are considering ourselves ethical, compassionate people, um, that, that may not be quantifiable, like buying the last product, but again, it's, it's that quality of uh, showing up as, uh, as compassionate vegan people, right? Yeah, yeah, I think that's a great example. So what is it when somebody like walks into the room and you get that sort of feeling at the core of whatever you are as a being that says, that person, I wanna be more like that. You know, how do you put that into numbers and, you know, statistics? You know, that feeling that this person inspires me. You know, it's really, I mean, there's things that inspirational people have, but you can't reduce that inspirational quality to those things that they do. Sure, they might be good speakers, they might be poetic, they might be good looking, they might be like whatever that influences people, right? But you can't reduce it to that. That quality of being able to walk in the room and influence people, that's what I'm talking about. And I mean, not influence per se, but the quality of human beings is, is really what we're after. And so you never really know what's happening when you're doing activists, when you're just one person. Yeah. You know, but- yeah. And you don't necessarily have to be some, you know, dynamic, amazing energy person. <laughs> you know, it can be as simple as just when you're having a conversation with someone and saying, oh yeah, I'm vegan. You know, it, it it's it's holding an ethical stance that people can admire and and do want to be like. You know, so I I don't want to put it on people that you know you have to be this uh, incredible dynamic person that comes into the room and everyone goes oh you know. <laughs> oh yeah, no, I mean I mean that's great if you're like that, but you don't that you don't have to be that to make a difference and to influence others. Uh, just by living your life as a vegan, ordering the vegan food, talking about veganism in a loving and uh, personable and friendly way, you know, that all just uh, can make such a huge difference. Yeah. I mean, you could theoretically be the most uninspiring, uncharismatic, you know, antisocial introvert, like whatever person in the world. And theoretically you could have a much greater impact than somebody who's got all those other qualities, you know, I mean, and this is what we're talking about is, is, is is you just don't really know. I mean, the, the, the complex system that is human society has got infinite variables and infinite factors, and we can't keep track of all of them. And so what we do is we tend to focus on the things that we can keep track of. And that tends to be at the expense of the things we can't quite keep track of. And so what we do is then we create like these value judgments, like we assess ourselves and we assess our, uh, others and we assess other activists based on the things that we can keep track of. And then we create judgments based on that. 
rather than like acknowledging the fact that there's a lot of things that are unquantifiable and that we don't really know. And so therefore, you know, I mean, just being supportive of yourself and others in whatever way people show up. And people are so different and diverse and what is going to appeal to one person isn't going to another. And and we need a diversity of approaches and, uh, and tactics so that, you know, we reach everyone. Yeah. I mean, isn't that what social pluralism is all about is the idea that we don't have to all be the same kind of person. We don't have to believe the same thing. We can disagree completely, but we can actually, society can be strengthened by that. Well, we could say the same thing about pluralistic vegan movement is that we don't all have to be the same kind of person. We don't all have to do the same kinds of activism, but honestly, I think this kind of gets to the heart of like what it means to show up in veganism based on your own proclivities, being true and honest with who you are, right? Like not everybody should feel like they should be this kind of activism if it's not sort of the constituency of one's being. Not all form, not not everybody can do every kind of activism based on being honest with their capabilities, their likes, their dislikes. If we find ways to show up in veganism in a way that is consistent with our, our inner passions, our inner workings, the things that we are inspired by, then arguably we're going to be more effective than if we follow a more effective version of activism that doesn't speak to who we are. So how do you quantify that? Because I think when we're people who aspire towards social change, we constantly find ourselves um, coming short, falling short of that ideal. And so I think we can beat ourselves up And we can make ourselves feel like we don't have our full worth because we haven't done this quantifiable thing that we think we should have, you know, I'm 50 now. I should have had my own, whatever, you know, you're talking about me, huh? No, not directly. (laughs) But I mean, we, we, we can do all of that, but, but I think we have to acknowledge that maybe we've done more good in in some way, Hmm. you know, than that quantifiable thing, you know? (laughs) <laughs> you you hear me too often lamenting uh it's 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 like my greatest lament is that god did i do enough what could i have done better what could i how can i do more it's uh it keeps me up at night and uh even though i know i've done all that i could and i did the best i could still doing the best i can it's it's tough because it, you know you you'd still there's still the suffering there's still animals dying and you just, you just want it to stop. And you feel like I've, you know, 50 years, I've worked so hard. Why is it still happening? (laughs) It's tough. Yeah. Well, I think that, I think that that's actually where all of these little philosophies ultimately come from is me sort of like being a witness to what, you know, the incredible achievements that you do and the struggle that you do. I mean, you struggle with these issues all day, every day for decades And I see the pain that that causes you and the difficulty that that causes you. And in my mind, you're amazing. I mean, there's never been a greater person in the history of the planet than you. (laughs) Um, And I don't care if you've only made 100,000 rather than 5 million vegans. I still say, I mean, I can see the quality of person that you are. Mm -hmm. And I don't want to reduce you to numbers. And I don't like when you reduce yourself to numbers. Yeah. You know what I mean? And so, and I think that that's kind of a message to other activists out there as well, too, or even vegans who are not active activists, like don't reduce yourself to numbers, you know, validate who you are and what you've done. And I think you'll be more effective if you do. 
you'll be stronger. You won't be, you won't be so busy beating yourself up and causing the self-violence. Yeah. You can come to that sort of place of neutrality and acceptance and even love for what it is that you have done. Yeah. And not think that, oh, if only it was this or only if it was that. But if you can just come to that, then you're going to be a stronger person who's maybe going to be more influential, you know, or better at what you do if you're not beating yourself up and undermining yourself, right? Yeah, yeah. And and the numbers thing is so hard now with online activism because you have direct feedback of numbers, likes and comments and downloads yeah, right, and all right. of that. And when you have these aspirations and you think, oh, this is the post that's going to get this many yeah, and yeah. it doesn't and you're just like oh you know it's that's the tough. time to remind yourself there's not quantity there's a qualitative aspect behind this yeah. that's unseen and you don't actually know and you have to trust in it you may have reached somebody in a way that nobody else could and that person might be special and unique in their own way in a way that's profound is worth a hundred vegans. I mean, you just, you don't know. Yeah. I mean, of course we, it's, we can't ignore the quantifiable, right? Like we can't ignore it. We got to work, you know, you work hand in hand. If something is reaching more people, sure do it, you know, but don't, you know, let that be a, a, a prescription to beat yourself up. Well, as always, you've made me feel much better. Thank you so much for your support and love. Thank you. But I'm not just talking to you. I'm talking to all the vegans. Out there. <laughs> yes. All right. Well, we're, we, we should really wrap up. We could probably, I know we can talk about this all day because we do often talk about this stuff all day, uh, but we need to wrap up. So thank you so much for being on the podcast. Well, thank you for having me as a guest. Yes. And I uh, hope to have you again sometime. Will you come on again? Well, it's kind of a commute for me. <laughs> oh my gosh. That was but funny. Um... Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, it was good. Thank you for listening to the Hope for the Animals podcast, sponsored by Compassionate Living. Well, Kojin and I kind of lost it there at the end, and <laughs> we never did really recover and get a more professional-sounding ending. <laughs> we just kind of fell apart and couldn't stop laughing, uh, as we so often do. Uh, sorry about that. I hope it put a smile on your face. <laughs> That's kind of what we do all day, actually. Kojin and I, we just kind of laugh, laugh at the world. We joke that we're like uh, Statler and Waldorf, the Muppets uh, up in the balcony uh, from the Muppet show. We just, we just kind of have this constant running commentary on how ridiculous the world is. And just we just laugh. We just laugh at it. So in this episode, I talked about having cats and that we can kind of feel hypocritical having to feed them meat, right? And I just wanted to recognize and, and kind of do a little follow-up here that I, I know I didn't mention vegan cat food. And there is vegan cat food, and many cats do really well on vegan cat food. But I personally had a bad experience uh, with with vegan cat food about 10 years ago when one of my kitties, Mouse, uh, got very sick when I put him on vegan cat food and he almost died. He was at the vet for days dying. <laughs> the vet put him on meat and he was then fine within a few hours after eating the meat. So uh, I, I never I never tried it again. 
Mouse and all the other kitties were in my care under my responsibility and I, I wanted to keep them healthy. It's tough. So, and there, you know, vegan formulas may have improved since then. This was a long time ago. And we might soon actually have cultivated meat options for cat food, like uh, in vitro meat, stuff like that. So, you know, that would be great. But right now it's tough. So, not all cats thrive on vegan cat food. I learned that the very hard and scary way. So, I just wanted to explain why I didn't mention it and give my story around that. But I have also heard of cats thriving for years, their whole lives on vegan cat food. So yeah, you know, it's a gray area, again, a gray area for sure. And you've just got to go with your heart and go with what feels right to you. Okay, I hope you enjoyed this episode. Remember that your impact, your contribution to kindness and compassion in the world might be hard to quantify, but there is one way to know that you are certainly making a difference, and that is to live vegan.